Hi, everybody. I'm Stuart Holbrook, president of Thuriault, and I'm here with... Florence Thuriault. This is our first installment of Dolls and Cents. It's a new podcast, kind of fun conversation that Florence and I are doing about different interesting topics in the doll world that may pertain to our auctions or the marketplace or doll history. We'll be doing these on a regular basis to give you all a chance to hear both of us and our opinions, which may and not always be the same. Very, absolutely guarantee they won't always be the same. But they usually are. Well, At least... Our, our ideas generally are in the, the right place for helping people to kind of understand different perspectives in the market. And well, we're on the same highway going the same place, but sometimes one of us takes a detour. Okay. And it's usually <laughs> and me. it's usually you. Anyway, uh, so this is the first series, and we'll sort of have a topic with every different podcast that we'll focus on, and I'm sure go off in tangents, as we often do, into other directions. But we'll try to come back to this original topic as we go forward for typically about 30 minutes on each of these podcasts. So definitely uh, keep subscribing to all of our emails to be notified when the new ones are up and running. Today, the conversation and the topic is going to be focused on provenance, and I think one of the more interesting... Stuart, I would interrupt you and say, this is a tomato-tomato conversation. Is it provenance or provenance? I always say provenance. I always say provenance. It doesn't matter. Provenance probably sounds better. It gives it a richer feel to it, but provenance is... Like tomato. Yes, but provenance is what flips off my tongue okay. whenever I'm talking it about it. But, uh, as long as people know what we're talking it's about. It's one of the most interesting topics in our subject, in our world of dolls, because in reality, provenance gives life to an object in ways that otherwise you might never really understand or have some tangible connection to that piece. Uh, I know Florence has a story that she likes to tell, and that is something about a rock. Well, it, it was an article in the Washington Post about a month ago, and it was about a man who was a paleontologist, and he had spent the last 30 years traveling around Washington. He lives in Washington, but walking in the forests and the paths and the parks because people told him there were no dinosaurs in Washington. We don't have forests in Washington. Well, whatever. Okay. Yes. uh, Forest Creek Park, something like that. Okay. At any rate. Rock Creek Park. Rock Creek Park. Okay. Uh, At any rate, he has turned up a number of stones that show proof that dinosaurs were in Washington. Then the whole Some can (laughs) argue that they still are. This may be true. (laughs) And, And... The theme of his whole article was, every rock has a story. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's just, that's what our whole industry is. That's what our business is. Every doll has a story. And it's our job, our destination, our purpose, our responsibility to try to uncover what the story of every doll is to the extent that we can. And sometimes it's just technical, who made it? But sometimes we can find out who past owners were, where it lived. It, like it, it, it's interesting. I always uh, do the analogy when I when I talk about this subject in lectures. I always have an analogy that I approach with another area of collecting, and that is sports memorabilia. I talk about a baseball, and one of the famous baseballs that broke a world record, and the frenzy behind who catches that ball, and then the bidding wars that ensue. Sometimes a single baseball can bring upwards of seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars, not because it's a baseball. Because it was the baseball. It has a story to tell. And so not only does it romance the object or romancing the stone, as I guess you used in your analogy. Well, we're romancing um, the doll. It gives value to an object in ways that otherwise, what's a baseball worth? $2.50? 
And yet, with the story, it becomes priceless. It is everything, provenance in our business. In its crudest form, almost, you could say that without knowing the different backgrounds of an item, we can say it's just stuff. It's just stuff. But if you go beyond that, if you can start to track down every possible thing you can know about it all, let me tell you a great story. We were selling uh, the museum in Davos, Switzerland, I don't know what now, seven years ago? It's been maybe? about that, yeah. yeah. And they had a wax doll there. And they actually had two wax dolls, but originally they only had one. And one day in this museum, these women from England came in and they looked at it and they gasped and they said, that was our family doll. And our great-grandfather gave every one of his his daughters, his daughters at the time, now it's gone through several generations, a wax doll exactly alike, each with a different color pastel dress. And that was one of them. And they went back to London, found another of the dolls that one of the sisters still had, one of the heirs still had, and brought it back and gave it to the museum. So those dolls kind of became reunited after, what, 130 years in this museum in Davos, Switzerland. I just think there is a story. There is a story. It's so wonderful. And that's one where they sort of became reunited there. And I love the stories, too, of of collectors that we've obtained, original family owners. And I remember, weren't there twin sisters once in Tiffin, Ohio, uh, wasn't there a story behind oh, I, this? I and they were the two. They, you did the the hat ladies of Tiffin the or something. Bonnet ladies of Tiffin. Tiffin. Yes. And they both had brews, matching brews, if you recall. Yes. And they both consigned them at the same time, yes. and they we, were sold. We had them on the cover of a catalog, and they were known as the Bonnet ladies of Tiffin. Yeah. And, and I believe they they stayed together as well. The mm-hmm. dolls they were purchased by the same person. It's interesting over the years because I uh, you research provenance from the perspective of cataloging and and mm-hmm. how you are going to write about the provenance and whether you should write about the provenance and I'm out in sort of the trenches of collectors' homes and meeting with them the people that are selling their collection who are presenting me objects saying here's the provenance and you and I though we do it at different times have essentially the same job of vetting provenance and what are the different levels oh, of it's provenance so to do. and it's really important because there are a lot of different levels and I thought we could share some of our ideas of of where we sort of ascertain the legitimacy or the process or placement of each of these. And understand when you use the term legitimacy, it's not like someone telling you a story about a doll is trying to defraud you or tell you something that they know is not true. Very often, the facts about a doll that people tell you, the story about a doll that people tell you, are not that. They're simply something's been passed along in the family and they've never stopped to really think about, wait a minute, this doesn't jive and this doesn't jive. There's things that are wrong. Things here. definitely become misconstrued over the mm-hmm. years and you have to correct them in that. And exactly. and it's not that they are, as you said, attempting to lie to you. It is just simply that I guess like that old game of telephone, if you recall, mm-hmm. when you used to play the you each told each other a secret down around a circle and then you at the end you uh, listened to what the final version was, which mm-hmm. was often completely different than it was when it started. And sometimes you have history that's passed down that gets distorted. And or it's just simply that, that the doll 
at some point, the family didn't realize as it was passed through five different generations, the doll got changed. Mm -hmm. The original doll may have broke and and a new person bought or bought another doll or it got misplaced and they thought it was this doll. There's so many factors that go into it. Well, sometimes, for example, someone will call and say, well, I have this really early doll and it's just wonderful. It belonged to my grandmother. And I'll say, oh, that's wonderful. Can you send us photographs or can you tell us about it? And then they tell, and I realize it's, maybe like a doll that was made by, by Gorham or, or some company mm-hmm. in the 1980s, and I'll tell them. And then the more they talk, they realize, well, yeah, it was my grandmother's, but I think somebody gave it to her on her 80th birthday as a Christmas gift. So, you know, you have to put all of the facts you learn about a, about a doll in perspective, and then you can come up with, okay, this is or can be a life story. Now, how about, Stuart, though, what do you think of dolls in which everything is correct but you don't have documentation. I think how you... Written documentation. Written doc. Okay, well, I think let's go and first of all talk about the different levels, starting at the top. And it will get to this question that you have. I mean, at the very top of the spectrum, what is the golden provenance doll or item? And that is what you just said, the doll that comes complete with uh, photographs. It could be the owner holding the doll, complete documentation from the family, a number of different factors that absolutely give not only the word of mouth, but has legitimate written and photographic evidence that this doll's provenance is exactly as said. Well, when we sold the dolls from the childhood collection of Shirley Temple, for example, that would be a really good indication That's an easy that. one, obviously. Easy it came one. from the family. There's photographs, everything. And Shirley but, holding the doll as a child. So right. that's, that's... There was a Jim O'Trice that I remember getting out of England a few years ago. Oh, uh, that I, I met the, that. I remember meeting the collector in London and and uh, we met at this uh, cafe and she brought in the box with the doll and then she unpacked all of these photographs and papers yes. and everything yes. that documented the whole history of the family of the family the child holding the doll the castle that they lived in in the north I mean it was incredible and that to me is the absolute pinnacle of provenance mm-hmm. I mean you have all this documentation and not just the story of the doll, but the story of the family and the history of that family. I think the greatest one ever, I'm sure you will probably agree, the greatest provenance, the greatest piece ever sold by our company in this relationship of this particular criteria was the Trousseau of Blondinette. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that story a little bit because I think it's an interesting story and you have more background in relationship with it because it's hard to believe it's now 20 some odd years since we sold that piece yeah came we were contacted by someone in france and they knew that this item was going to become available and all of the information about the original chateau it came from this doll came out from the attic and it had letters from the little girl in fact the doll someone had written letters to the doll it was just wonderful all of the original costumes, everything was absolutely pristine. And these were all hooray, just to clarify, so yes. people who are not familiar mm-hmm. with it. And it was it was a hooray doll with other hooray dolls, accessories, furniture, clothing. Mm-hmm. I think about two hundred and fifty pieces altogether. No, there weren't that. No, no, no. no. Okay. Were, it was it was uh, fairly small. It was like an eight, fairly small. For if a child had this today, they mm-hmm. would think it'd be incredible. A doll with about eighty pieces of costume, accessory, mm-hmm. furniture, that type of thing. And it was extraordinary to find it. What do you think of a doll that has 
I call a partial provenance. And not starting at the beginning, because everything you've talked about so far, you've talked about the beginning life of a doll who had it as a child. But what about a doll that has been in a museum? Mm-hmm. You made me think of it a few minutes ago when you were talking about the Blondinette doll. We've sold a Flora McFlimsy doll that came from the museum in Winter Haven, Florida. It was, was in that? the 80s, early 80s, yeah, I believe. Yeah, exactly. This was kind of a trend in the, in the 1880s, 1890s, that a doll would be done and it would be a charity costume made by various couturiers and milliners, and it would travel around and then it would be raffled. And it was called Flora McFlimsy. After a poem of the time about Flora McFlimsy had nothing to wear, and I forgot how the poem goes, but something like Thank that. Thank goodness. <laughs> yes, I know. I might <laughs> sing it, and then you'd really yes. be in trouble. At any rate, this doll still had all of her costumes. Now, we can trace it back. We go back to the museum when they had it, so that was in the mid-'80s. They might have had it 20 years before that, so that will take you back into... And now I know how long I've been in this business, because in my mind, I can trace that doll now. It was bought by a collector in Michigan. Yes. And I remember they had it for a number of years. Then they sold their collection because I went and picked it up. Mm -hmm. And this was in the 90s. We picked it up, we sold it, and now it is in a collection in California. Really? In Southern California. Fab, one of the greatest collections in the world. Exactly. So it not only has an historical provenance, but it has a legacy of coming from a museum. But, you know, you talk about. Let me finish. So this doll was, this doll would have been like 1890 when it was made. Mm -hmm. So now we brought it back to about maybe 1960, 1970. Mm -hmm. There's the missing gap in there. Where was that doll? Who owned that doll during that time? It is interesting. Did it sit in the closet somewhere with a, mm-hmm. in a family member's house and just was uncovered? Or was it passed through some early generation collectors, some of the what I call the founders of doll collecting? Did it pass through some of their hands and end up into the market? But it's true. And most everything has a gap. Everything. Where everything has a gap. Well, that, here's, can I interrupt you again? Yeah. All right. Please, you okay. never, why are you asking? Has it ever stopped you before? No, but it might make you be quiet while I talk. Okay. <laughs> so we have recently sold three automatons that came from a woman who contacted us from Vancouver, city of Vancouver mm-hmm. in Canada. And she said that these had been in her family forever. And then she related the story to us about her, might have been her great-great-uncle or great-great-grandfather, I'm not sure again now at this point who it was but he was in India working for the British government and he was there for a number of years and at some point during his time he was a chief judge in the Punjab court he was gifted these three automatons by a man as she wrote known only to the family as the Maharaja and he had them kept them and when he went back to England some years later brought them back with him they stayed with the family in England and then eventually they were sent to Vancouver, Canada, where I think her great-aunt lived, and her great-aunt was a physician, and a child's physician, and they were, they were supposed to be done in the waiting room of her office so we could entertain the children. Well, when she saw how beautiful they were and they were perfectly preserved, she said, they're not going there. She kept them in her home. So we have that whole story, but what we're missing from the beginning of that story is how did those automaton come into the possession of the Maharaja. Mm-hmm. We can only guess about mm-hmm. that part mm-hmm. of it. So as you say, everything has a gap. 
Somebody once told me that, or they said why they collected dolls, and they told me because they are full of so many unknowns. It fascinates me. Oh, I love that. And yeah. um, I always thought that was a great quote, mm-hmm. actually. Um, mm-hmm. It's true. Another one, if we're talking about examples of, of different ones, Victor Hugo was a great one, oh. the, the great French fashion of Victor Hugo that he had, that he gave to his niece, I believe, or his... It was, we called it the great man's doll. And this is what I mean when I said we'd go down different paths and sometimes a detour. So when I was cataloging and researching that doll, I swear, Stuart, I detoured and I read every book Victor Hugo ever wrote because I kept wanting, and I kept finding all of these references to dolls and things. They just, they sparked a whole life in me in writing about that doll. And I think when people own a doll, that they have the same thing. It can take them on a path to researching, not that particular doll, but the whole environment, the, the history and the culture that surrounds that particular I've always movement. felt that with your cataloging, that dolls like the Victor Hugo doll, that you have the provenance that's presented to you, mm-hmm. that's that's been given to you along with everything, but you have that next duty, which is to kind of go deeper to Mm -hmm. research further and thank goodness for the internet now in so many ways and that you're able to access a lot of this information and find things that nobody ever knew before there's a relationship with him and dolls that was kind of ignored until the doll came out you found it were able to write about it and it brought this whole story to life and and we're all storytellers in the end Mm -hmm. and these stories how we relate them and how we keep them is so vital and you know, you talk about this as well, is it's also the collector's job to document always. If they have information about their doll, if they have knowledge, even if it's just past word of mouth, mm-hmm. you have to write these things down. Keep them with the doll so that this history can continue on with it and people are cognizant of the rich tapestry of life that this particular piece has had over the years. There's no question about that. And I, I very often someone will will purchase a doll from us at auction, and they'll say, oh, I don't really like that costume. I'm just going to change that costume. And, and so I think, oh, no, please. I'm thinking to myself, but it's, you know, it, they, it owns, they own it now. It's not my right to tell them. So what I can say is that doll has had that costume for 125 years, whatever. I'm making an example. Mm-hmm. And it, it's okay. One of the cardinal rules of a museum, for example, of what can you do to an object you never, then the cardinal rule is, and I'm sure they have a very Tony way of saying it, but I'll say it simply, never do anything to an object that you cannot undo. So if you want to change the costume on a doll, that's okay. But it's your absolute obligation. You, I, I'm sorry, I'm kind of a bear about this. You have no right to own that doll if you don't want to preserve the originality of it. So go ahead, change the costume, but take the other costume and wrap it carefully and if you can't attach it to the doll, mark it carefully and put it in a drawer where you, and then designate on the doll where that other co- mm-hmm. the original costume is so that 25 years later, when someone else is handling your estate, they can look at it and they can put those pieces back together and keep them original. And lots of times when you're in a home, for example, you ask people, well, what about photographs? And then they start thinking, and how many times do they ever, they they can come up, not necessarily photographs of the child holding the doll, Mm -hmm. but of the child, Mm -hmm. of the child at a Christmas Mm -hmm. celebration, of the child playing with other objects. And those things really enhance the value of a doll, not only monetarily, but historically. 
I, I agree. One of the uh, one of the things I love about my job is being able to be the person, sort of as I said before, out there in the trenches and going into the homes of some of these original owners. And recently, I got the chance to meet the grand niece of the Full Sisters, the famous Moravian dolls, Maggie, uh, Be- Maggie Bessie. Maggie Bessie. Maggie Bessie. And I've been huge fan of these dolls for years because I, I just think they embody this wonderful sense of Americana, as I call it. For those not familiar with them, Google and and see pictures that they're very simple. And I don't want to call them homespun. They have a sort of a commercial feel to them, but they do have that element of Americana homespun that makes them so full of life in our early history here of doll making. And I got to meet the grandniece and in doing so uncovered with her original family dolls that the full sisters would give to all of the kids and pictures of them sitting in their rocking chairs with the kids sewing, with the kids all sitting on the floor playing with dolls or and posed the, with these them. These photographs are great, Stuart, because I'm looking at them and I'm, and I'm putting on my big magnifying glass trying to figure what dolls are they holding? Yep. And they're not necessarily holding Maggie Bessie no, dolls. No, no. Like, they, they had like a German China doll yep, they would hold exactly. or something along those lines. But these were actually the Maggie Bessie dolls that the sisters gave to the kids to be able to play with themselves. And so they were their family dolls. Oh, and another part of that collection that came in that intrigued me, they were maybe 18 inches tall, and there were two of them. And the family had always called them the dancing dolls. Mm-hmm. And basically, they were they were a form of paper doll, but they were entirely handmade by Maggie and Bessie. Mm-hmm. And cut out, flat dimensional, with fabric costumes applied to the front of them. And their faces and hair are all hand-painted. They're absolutely beautiful. You know, this was a real dilemma to me when you talk about provenance now. When you brought this collection in, and it had some of the little Benegda dolls, that were the little miniature mm-hmm, ones mm-hmm. that were made starting in 1910 right up through 1950, and it had the one beautiful Maggie Bessie doll with a trunk of costumes that the sisters had made, and it had three others, and they were like a progression of the making of a doll, one without any face at all, one with some oil painting, and then one much more completed. And I thought, well, how are we going to sell these? What's the right way to do? Because I know people love these dolls, and you know maybe we should sell them separately. And I thought, no, they've been together all these years. They're from the family. They've got these photographs that go with mm-hmm. them, and this should stay together. I think it's so a good choice. So that's how we're selling them. I think we learned a lot over the years from the Trousseau of Blondinette that we talked about earlier, yeah. an example of something that we did that yielded the best results from a from, money a, mon- from a money point of view. Yeah. At the time. At the time. But in essence, we sold it because we, just to take you back in the story, we sold it piecemeal. Instead of selling it all together, we sold every costume, every accessory, every doll, every single thing in that entire trousseau of Blondinette sold it separately. There is no doubt that we probably, I'm going to venture to say, doubled the results doing it this way. However, the history of that object has been basically spread out all over the world and will never be reunited as one single piece again. Well, there are two people that have worked really hard at reuniting. They have, and they have, and they know one is still doing it in Chicago, is still well, the, attempting the, the, the and to get all these pieces yeah. back. But it's a great quest and a noble cause, and certainly we all need our challenges in collecting, but 
it's doubtful it'll ever be. And I think we learned from that. In being an auction house, you have the responsibility to always be looking to how you can get the best results Mm -hmm. for your clients. But at times, you have to balance that with also preserving history and preserving the integrity of an item. And I think we've learned that far more in the past 25 years since then. In It hasn't been that long. I think it's been 25 years wow. since Trousseau of Blondinette. So it's really fascinating. Um, so that we were talking about the golden provenance, the one with photographs, all the documentation. And this is a secondary one that is what I would call just a verbal word of mouth, a history, a documentation, mm-hmm. not necessarily in photographs, but it might just be a little written story that somebody put together. Or an example is the Man on the Moon automaton recently that I got out of Connecticut that there, there is some written article, but again, it is all based on word of mouth. It has an interesting history. The history fits. The timeline is correct. The piece naturally has a feel for the story that the people have told. Everything seems to be okay. There's just not what I would call tangible evidence. In that case, you'd absolutely present the history of that object and how it is. And then there's the third one, and you mentioned this one before, and that's the one where it doesn't fit. It doesn't work out. The piece does not fit in the timeline of the story they're telling. Um, Nothing really jives together. And that's where we have a responsibility to kind of educate the person who's trying to tell us this story in that I don't know how to inform you, but it it doesn't work. It's, It's not right. So I think those are kind of your three different tiers. Actually, in the third case, it's really been felicitous in some ways because family members have gone back and questioned other family members and sometimes they have ended up finding out well wait a minute we skewed one thing wrong and then they find for example the doll that should have fit Mm -hmm. that story and it's there and one of the family members has it but they just got it mixed up in their mind so people have always been receptive to learning because people are fascinated about the objects that they have and they want to know about them you know there's a there's a another whole level of provenance too that we've never talked about before we always tend to associate the provenance or as you call it the provenance and with the family the original family or the original owner but there is a provenance as well to a collector who might have a rich history or be a legend in the world in which that doll carries that original ownership for generations of collectors. Thinking back to recent ones that we've sold that I know will carry that legacy for years, Mildred Seeley. Oh, yes. Anything that comes from that original Mildred Seeley collection and auction is beloved by collectors. And a lot of times it's funny. I always try to encourage and tell collectors that in so many ways, who they are as a person who they are as a collector, how they contribute to the world of dolls, sometimes will be far more defining to their collection than their dolls ever will to them. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. We define our collections more than they define us. Mm -hmm. And Mildred Seeley is a perfect example. Was it the greatest collection in the world? It was up there. It was up there, but it was not the greatest collection in the world. But she was so sharing. But she was one of the most giving, loving, energetic, enthusiastic spokespeople for the world of dolls for generations that she was absolutely beloved. And that transcended to her dolls so that it became not just buying a a brew or a jamo. It became buying 
a doll from the Mildred Seeley collection. Exactly. And why we do these tags sometimes here's that say. She did what, here's what she did once, let me tell you. You know, she always did seminars, and mm-hmm. she wrote books, and she was she just would talk to people and tell them about dolls. But one day I was talking to her on the phone, and she said, oh, there's somebody at the door. I have to go. So she hung up, and about a week later I was talking to her again, and I said, who was that at the door when you hung up the other day? She said, I don't know. It was just somebody that came and knocked on my door, and they said they heard I had a beautiful collection. They'd love to see it. I said, you didn't let them in. She said, oh, yeah, they were a lovely person. I let them in. Yeah, said, uh, she would do this all the like. time. I said, really, stop I know. that. She would have whole groups from Japan come over and stay yeah. at her house for a week. Yeah. And she and they would sit on the floor and play dolls. And they she would let them touch her A marks and, had, and not a problem. She had an angel she on loved her shoulder it. because she, nothing ever happened to her. Nothing. It was loved her. It, they did. And, and she was amazing in that sense. And, and that defined her dolls. And there are, you know... For a lot of collectors today, I'm kind of getting off the topic of provenance, but not really. A lot of collectors today may say, well, I'll never be a Mildred Seeley or I'll never be a Lucy Morgan, another one that you mm-hmm. would say originally came from the collection of Lucy Morgan. There's countless that we can go on about. But it does, you don't have to have a $4 million collection. $3 million collection. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of collectors that can have a wonderful, very niche-oriented, specialized collector that are building an association and a name around that collection that will, again, define things far more than the dolls themselves, who they are. Just an example, somebody who I really respect and, and have loved over the years is Judy Henry. Do you know who I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Judy is the nicest person in the world and has this specialty of all bisque dolls and has built a name for herself around all bisques. Done research, written articles, lectures. And, and cling. And cling, yes. And done a number of different outreach programs to collectors to educate them on the subject and will in many ways define her collection the way that she has enriched other collectors' lives with her spending years on this subject far more than maybe the dolls themselves. Well, Stuart, I think some things that have come from a museum Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a huge one. Absolutely. I mean, from the Davos Museum that we had, the Legoland Museum, Uh, the the Vienna Vienna Museum Museum of Slotky. How many people talked about us and said, oh, my memories of going, I would go every time I could, I would go to that museum. And then most recently, Sammy Oden's Museum Mm -hmm. in Paris. Mm -hmm. People came to that auction and... In many cases, they just wanted to own something that they had seen in that museum. It was it was not the object itself. Again, I, I know this is crude when I say it, but it's true. The object itself is stuff until you put its background and history with it. What provenance is, it it allows a person a chance to tell a story. Yes, and it allows a collector to own that object and to be able to tell that story. You know, a lot of what you might have in your cabinet, you can say yes. Aesthetically, this is a beautiful brew. Look at the gorgeous face. Look at the costume. And you can tell the story of that doll itself, but it stops there. And for someone who's not a collector, it may not resonate with them. It may not stick with them. But if you have a story to tell about that doll, it came from a museum, or this once belonged to Mary Todd Lincoln, or look, here's the photograph of the child holding it as a young girl in 1878. Okay, now you're at. Now you have really yeah. engaged the people you're talking to to show them that every doll has a story. And okay, here's I've just been working on this talk I'm doing about 
a particular thing in dolls. And I've been looking up this Philip Goldsmith who made doll bodies in Cincinnati. Oh, Philip Goldsmith, of course. Yes. Okay, <laughs> I want to tell you, if you had a Philip Goldsmith doll on your shelf, and you're very proud of it because they're really hard to get, but I'm going to tell you, the average person walking down the street, you're going to bring them in and show them your collection. They're not going to go gaga over a Philip Goldsmith doll. But if one of those people is a guy... They might be interested in the story that Philip Goldsmith made these dolls and because they had leather components to their body. But after his sons took over the business, they got tired of making these dolls, and so they just decided to make baseballs instead. Is that That's interesting really story? interesting. And all of a sudden now, there's a story. Well, I'm going to confess, too, that certain objects that collectors look at may not be aesthetically pleasing or fetching to them until they hear the story. One that you hit on with me recently, and so again, provenance does not have to be the history of that object and its ownership. Provenance could be a unique backstory to the people who made that doll. Yesterday, you were talking to me about a certain doll maker whose dolls I have never been overly enchanted with. I'll be the first to admit it. Ludwig Greiner. And you told me kind of the history of the family and the story behind the Griner family, and I found that fascinating. Now, I'm not necessarily going to say I'm going to start falling in love with Griner dolls, but I certainly... But you see them differently. But I see them differently now, and I certainly have more of an appreciation for their place in American history and immigrant families who've come here and the the passion for doll making that they had at a very early time, in an early period. So, you know, all of these things, provenance is the stories we have to tell. And it could be any story, the maker, the owner, the life of that object. It's all rich and wonderful. Well, we're going to end it there unless you have any other comments you want to add. Um, uh, This is fun. Uh, We're going to do, again, a whole series of these for you. You never let me talk so much. It's great. Yeah, and we'll do a whole series of these over the course of the year. Every few weeks we'll come up with a new topic, and Florence and I will just wing it and chat. It's called Dolls and Cents. We'd love to hear ideas that people would like to hear us go on about, too. Email us us at info at thuryalts.com if you do have any topic you would like Florence and I to address and possibly argue over, which is all always fun. People love to hear that. Our different perspectives and ideas. Look for us at www.theryalts.com. We've enjoyed this. I've enjoyed having the chance. We never get a chance to talk. I haven't talked to you so much in a year. I know. It's wonderful. (laughs) Thank you all very much, folks. Thank you very much.